First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for this word that we've just heard. We thank you for this part of our service where we can study your word and hear from you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts now. Help us to see your truth. Help us to be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. When thinking about Father's Day today, I came across this touching story this week about the Georgetown University football team, Lou Little, was the coach at the time, and he had a player on his team who was really only uh, moderately athletically gifted, and because of that, he didn't see a whole lot of playing time uh, on the field during the actual games, but Coach Little was very fond of of this young man. He liked him a lot, especially like the the way that this young man would walk with his father arm in arm uh, on uh, the college campus and the close relationship that they had. But one day in the fall, just a few days before a big game against Fordham University, that player's mother called with the news that his father had died of a sudden heart attack. And the young man went home with a heavy heart, but came back three days later and went to Coach Little and said, Coach, will you start me this Saturday in the game against Fordham? I think that's what my father would have wanted most. Uh, The coach hesitated, but uh, then said, okay, I'll start you, but uh, I'll only play you for a play or two. Uh, True to his word, uh, the coach put the boy in the game, but he never took him out of the game because for the next 60 minutes, that boy was all over the football field making tackles and making plays as though he were an All-American. And after the game, the coach came up to the boy and said, Son, you have never played like that before. What got into you? The boy looked at the coach and said, Remember how my father and I would walk arm in arm? Well, that's because my father was completely blind. And today was the first day that he ever saw me play. You know, thinking about... That's that story. That young man played with all of his heart and all of his passion because he believed that his father was watching him play. You know, isn't that the way it should be for all of us as believers in the Lord? Uh, Every day we should live with all of our heart and all of our passion because we know we have a father in heaven who is watching us. And we want our lives to please him, to bring him honor. You know, that's the way Jesus lived his life. In John chapter 8, it says that he always did those things that please the Father. In obviously a less perfect way, uh, to a lesser extent, the Apostle Paul also lived to please the Father. Uh, No matter what the consequences were, no matter how much it cost him, Paul Uh, just kept on going, didn't he? He just kept on living uh, for the Lord. As we continue to make our way through the book of Acts, we've seen for some time now that Paul is trying to get back to Jerusalem. He has collected an offering from all of the churches that he wants to give 
to the believers in Jerusalem. They had been going through a terrible famine, so he wants to get that relief uh, to them. Uh, But like Brother Larry pointed out last week, as he got closer to Jerusalem, every city that he went to, uh, he kept receiving warnings that uh, all that was waiting for him in Jerusalem was imprisonment and suffering. And yet Paul uh, continued on ahead anyway because he knew that that's what the Lord wanted him to do. We saw last week that even when his friends were pleading with him with tears in their eyes that he would not go to Jerusalem because they were afraid about what would happen to him there, this is how Paul responded to them in Acts 21 verse 13. He said, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Obviously, it was the grace of God that enabled Paul to be able to think that way, to be able to live that way. But, you know, that's also kind of a man's man things to, to say, isn't it? I am ready to die. I'll keep on going to Jerusalem no matter what. You know, in the story today, we're going to see more of the same from the Apostle Paul, that he mans up, that he stands tough, that he keeps getting back up, telling people about Jesus, even when they're literally trying to beat him to death. With it being Father's Day, I'm using that uh, term man up today, but of course I mean that uh, in a gender neutral way. To, To man up really just means to be courageous, doesn't it? To, to stand tough, to stand firm, no matter how hard the circumstances might be. And you know, uh, that's something that by God's power, Christian men and Christian women are called to do. You know, we need some believers today who will do that. The need today is for Christ followers who will man up and live their lives 100% on mission for Jesus. You know, by God's grace, I pray that that's exactly how you and I will live this one life that God has given to us. You know, in order to do that, uh, in order to, to man up like Paul did, there's a few things that we need to do. First off, in order to man up, we've got to loosen up. We've got to loosen up. What I mean by that is we need to be flexible on non-gospel issues, Now, you can already tell that I mean something a little bit different by that phrase, man up, than our world means. Sometimes when our world talks about being a man, uh, they talk about being some kind of a a tough, macho guy that, you know, always insists on getting his way all the time. That's actually the exact opposite of what a godly man is supposed to be like. A godly man is to be a humble man. A godly man, a godly woman is to be somebody who defers to others who puts the needs of others, the desires of others ahead of themselves, as we're going to see Paul doing in this passage. A godly man is someone who shows humility, a willingness to submit to others, even a flexibility about things that are not essential to the gospel. Let me show you what I mean as we walk through these verses. We read in verse 17 that when Paul and his company got to Jerusalem, that the believers there rejoiced. They were glad to see them. There's probably many reasons for that. One of them, of course, is that they were grateful and relieved and overjoyed at this offering that all these churches had taken up to minister to them. I believe they also rejoiced uh, because of the news they heard from Paul about how many Gentile believers had come to faith in Jesus Christ. They were so excited to hear it. 
And then the next day, Paul went to visit with James and with the elders of the Jerusalem church. Apparently, by this time, the apostles were away from Jerusalem on missionary activities. And so leadership in the church at Jerusalem had been handed over to James, who is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and to these elders or pastors. And the elders of the church were also excited to hear uh, Paul's stories. Uh, He shared with them, I'm sure, everything that we've read about so far in the book of Acts. All these amazing stories, the different cities that he went to, how people came to faith in Christ. And remember, there were people from each of the churches who had contributed to the offering who traveled with Paul to Jerusalem. And so he had in that meeting, sitting beside him, exhibit A, B, C, and D, right, from all of these churches, Gentiles who had heard the message of Jesus, put their faith in Christ, and so they rejoiced when they saw it, when they heard it. They shared with Paul also about the amazing things God had been doing right there in Jerusalem, how many Jewish folks had come to faith in Christ. He talks about a myriad of those who had been saved, thousands of those. We don't know the exact size of the Jerusalem church at this time. We do know it was, it's bigger now than the last time Luke gave us an update. And the last update was that it was 5,000 people strong. So it was already bigger than that. And so they were rejoicing over what God had done. But in the midst of all of that great news, they also had something on their hearts, a concern that they really needed to tell Paul about. And in this meeting, they shared with Paul about how there were some rumors going on about him. There were some folks who were saying some things about Paul that were not true. You can see the rumors there in verse 21. They said to him, They have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to their customs. So you had these uh, folks from Jewish backgrounds who had put their faith in Jesus, come to believe in him as their Messiah, but they continued to practice some of those Jewish customs. Many of them continued to keep the dietary laws of the Old Testament. They continued uh, to keep the Sabbath day. They continued to celebrate the various feasts in the Old Testament. And some people were telling them, you know, the Apostle Paul says you shouldn't be doing that. The Apostle Paul is going around saying that Jewish people should give up all of those things. Now, of course, that was not true. Paul had never said that a Jewish person needed to stop being Jewish in order to be a Christian. Now, he did say to Gentiles that they should not adopt those Jewish practices. And the reason that he said that to Gentiles was that for them, it was a different situation. For them, if they began to practice circumcision and all of those things, it was as if they were saying, you know, believing in Jesus Christ is not really enough to save me. I need to to add all of these other things from the Old Testament to my faith in Christ in order to really be saved. And so Paul came down very hard against that. And you can see that in his letter to the Galatians and some of his other writings as well. He told Gentiles that believing in Jesus Christ is enough. And to add anything else to that shows that they really weren't trusting in Christ alone. But again, that was his message to Gentiles, to those who were Jewish, Uh, He he never told them they had to give all those things up. In fact, in Romans 14, you can read that perhaps later this week, he said that really it didn't matter to him either way, that it was just a matter of conscience for them whether they continued to practice those things 
or not. He said some people uh, eat certain foods, some people don't. Let each one be convinced in their own mind. Now, he never told a Jewish, a Jewish Christian, for example, uh, that he could not circumcise his son in keeping with Jewish customs. In fact, uh, Paul himself, we saw this earlier in the book of Acts, he took his son in the faith, Timothy, and he, he was born to a Jewish mother and a Greek father. He took Timothy and had him circumcised before he went with him on his missionary journey so that he could go into the synagogues, so he could share with Jewish people about Christ. And so if this is something that Paul was willing to do himself, certainly it wasn't something that he was commanding others to stop doing. Apparently, the elders in Jerusalem knew that this rumor about Paul was not true. They also knew, though, that if they didn't do something to quiet that rumor, that it could really negatively impact Paul's ability and their own ability to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with unbelieving Jews who were there in Jerusalem. And so they came up with a plan. And you can see their plan there in our our text, starting in verse 23. And it's a little bit confusing, especially if you're newer to, to the scriptures to kind of wade through what their plan was. But essentially their plan was, you know, the best way to communicate that Paul is not against the Jewish customs is to have Paul very publicly participate in a Jewish custom. And that would just show that everything they're saying about him is not true. And so they said, Paul, we have four men in our church who are going through a Nazarite vow. And we won't go through everything that that entails. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 6. But it was a way for a person to just, uh, just to say to, to the Lord that I'm just fully surrendered and devoted to you. Uh, a Nazarite vow, uh, the most famous example was that of Samson. Of course, his vow was to be a lifelong vow. Uh, but for many others, it was a short-term thing. It could be 30 days was a very common length. And during that 30-day period, uh, the person taking that Nazarite vow would give up drinking wine. They would uh, not do anything that might defile themselves. They would not cut their hair during that 30 days period of time. At the end of that period, <clears throat> they would cut their hair. They would bring that to the temple. They would bring some sacrifices to the temple as a way of completing that vow. And so the elders said, Paul, the way that you can really sow your, your support for this is you go with these four men. Uh, you even offer to sponsor them, offer to pay for the sacrifices that they're going to give at the temple at the end of their 30 days. And that would just communicate uh, that you're not opposed to the Jewish customs and the Jewish practices. Now for Paul to do that, he also had to purify himself for a period of seven days in order to even take part in that ceremony. And yet Paul was willing to do that. According to verse 26, he went along with the elders' plans. He went to the temple for his own purification to announce the end of that. And, and so he went along with their plan. The question is, should he have gone along with their plan? And why did he go along with their plan? Why did he even care to try to put to rest these rumors, right? Why didn't he just say, you know what? Haters gonna hate. You know, they're, they're saying things that aren't true about me and uh, that is what it is. Why, why, did he, why was he willing to go to these kind of links in order to take part in this Nazarite vow? Uh, I, I believe that he did it for the same reason Paul did everything else. He did it for the sake of the gospel. Uh, I believe that he did it first of all because he could do it. Uh, despite what some commentators have written, I really don't believe he was violating the gospel message in order to take part in this as a Jewish person. And so he could do it. 
But he also knew that by doing it, his hope, his desire was that he would remove any barriers from Jewish unbelievers uh, that, that would put their faith in Jesus Christ. He wanted to make it easier for his Jewish countrymen to put their faith in the Lord. We know how much Paul loved uh, those uh, who were Jewish. He talks about in Romans 9, I, I would rather be myself accursed if it would mean that my Jewish brothers and sisters come to faith in Christ. That's how much he loved them. In fact, I believe that what he was doing here is really a perfect example of what he wrote to the Corinthians about his philosophy of ministry in 1 Corinthians 9. Look at these words. He said, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jew, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law towards God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I become as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. And Paul's attitude was, I am not going to compromise the gospel itself, but short of that, I'll do anything else. I'll be flexible. I'll be adaptable. I will bend over backwards if that is what it takes for someone else to be able to be saved. Now, friend, what about you? What about me? Are you and I willing to do the same thing. Some of us need to loosen up about things that are not essential to the gospel. Now listen, there are things that we need to hold tenaciously to and never let go. We need to hold to the deity of Christ, to the exclusivity of salvation through Christ. We need to, know, we need to hold to the inerrant word of God. There are some things we should never let go of, but when it comes to lesser things, when it comes to things that aren't even talked about in the Bible at all, right? we should not treat secondary things as though they were primary things. And we should never let anything stand in the way of someone else from a different background being able to hear the message of Jesus and come to believe in him. Now, being all things to all people doesn't mean that we pretend to be something we're not. It doesn't mean that we're a chameleon, that you change your opinions all the time depending on what group you are with, but it does mean that we try to build bridges it does mean that we remove barriers. It does mean that, that we set aside our preferences and we accommodate ourselves to others so that we can gain a hearing for the gospel. You know, a couple of years ago, I was able to travel to South Asia and uh, we were on a mission trip and going through these slum areas in South Asia, these narrow passageways. And we would be invited into people's homes. And when we were invited into their homes, we would, we would sit down on the ground with them. And uh, as a part of their hospitality, uh, they would give us a little cup of hot chai tea. And it actually, if you haven't had that before, it is not too bad, right? I hadn't had it before, but I, I loved it. It was great. Uh, but you know what happens when you go to the second house right after that? You know what they give you? A little cup of hot chai tea. And by the time you've gone to your 14th house in a row in the same afternoon, do you know what's the last thing ever that you want to put into your mouth? Hot chai tea. But you know what you don't do is say, you know what, I've already had 13 cups of hot chai tea. I'm going to bring my Mountain Dew with me that I brought from America that I could have at this moment. No, what you do is you have your 14th cup of 
Hachai tea. Because to the South Asians, you become South Asian. That they might be able to meet Jesus. And you know what? It's the same thing here. That we don't let our preferences, we don't let our secondary issues stand in the way. Something that we might disagree with an unbeliever about that's not a gospel issue. We do not allow that to prevent us from being able to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. If we're going to man up like Paul did, the first thing we need to do is to loosen up about non-gospel issues. But not only do we need to loosen up, we also need to look up. We need to be looking for opportunities to share about Jesus, even when they come in the most unlikely and unfavorable of situations. And suffice it to say, the elders' plan did not go as planned. Because we read in the text, starting in verse 27, that it was the seven days of Paul's purification were almost over. He was in the temple, but there were some Jews from Asia, most likely from the city of Ephesus, where Paul had spent three years of his life. We don't know whether they had come to Jerusalem because they were chasing Paul, whether they were just there to celebrate Pentecost, but they definitely recognized him and they let him have it. In fact, they stirred up the crowd into a frenzy. They began to spread more lies about Paul. They said that Paul spoke bad about the people of Israel. He spoke bad about the law of Moses, that he spoke bad about the temple itself. Of course, Paul did none of the sort, but he simply preached that all of those things had found their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they also began to spread this lie that Paul had taken a Gentile named Trophimus, who was from Ephesus. They recognized him. They saw Paul walking with him earlier in Jerusalem, and they thought uh, that he had taken him into the temple and past the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were allowed to go, and taken him into the inner court of the temple, where no Gentile was allowed to go. And of course, Paul did nothing of the sort. He knew that there was a death penalty if you did such a thing. But nonetheless, they spread this lie about Paul. The crowd believed it. So they went and they grabbed Paul. They dragged him down the stairs out of the inner courtyard. They slammed the door shut and they were ready to beat Paul to death right there. Thankfully, at that moment, Roman soldiers who were stationed at the Antonia Fortress, it was right at the corner of the temple, saw this mob that was forming. They alerted the commander. He came down with 200 Roman soldiers at least and saved Paul's life. We find out in a couple of chapters, this Roman commander's name was Claudius Lysias. Now he did come and arrest Paul. He assumed that Paul was guilty of some crime and that's what the crowd was upset about. But because everybody was yelling, he couldn't figure out what Paul had done wrong. And so he decided to drag Paul uh, into the barracks where he could interview him more privately and get to the bottom of it. Verse 35, it says, when they got to the stairs that led up to the barracks, the soldiers actually had to lift Paul up on their shoulders. They had to get him away from the crowd because even though the soldiers were there, the crowd was still so mad at Paul, they were trying to get him and drag him down to the ground so that they could execute their justice on him right then and there. What amazes me is this. In verses 37 to 40, Paul, in in very polite Greek, asked the commander for permission to speak. And after a brief conversation, that permission is granted. And so here is Paul. Picture this in your mind. Here is Paul standing at the top of these stairs. Roman soldiers are having to guard the stairs to keep the crowd from killing him. And he's standing there at the top of these stairs, and he wants to preach to this crowd 
that just a moment before that was trying to beat him to a pulp. I don't know about you, but if it was me, I would have been asking the Roman soldiers, like, can you get me out of here as quickly as possible? Like, these people are crazy. These people are about to kill me. You need to get me out of here. And yet Paul was in the very same situation. And he said, you know what? This seems like a good opportunity to preach a sermon right now. Just let me stand here at the top of the stairs and and let me have at it. Now, Paul did say in Colossians, he said this, he said, Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Most of us, I think, would say, yeah, but Paul, this doesn't really seem like a great opportunity. This crowd does not like you. This crowd is trying to kill you, and you're going to preach to them? I think that many of us are on about the exact opposite end of the spectrum from where Paul is here. We, 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 are, we are wanting like all the stars to align, right? For us to have an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus, we're wanting all the stars to align. We're wanting somebody to walk up to us like with an open Bible and say, I heard you were a Christian. Can you tell me how to be saved? That's probably not going to happen all that often, right? And so we need to be looking for opportunities that are a little less opportune than that. And so let me ask you this. How many of you had a better opportunity this past week to tell somebody about Jesus than Paul had here? Right? Here, here's the test, right? If you met any unbeliever in the last seven days and they weren't trying to kill you 10 seconds before that, you had a better opportunity than Paul had, right? Does that make sense? Right? If you spent time around any lost person and they weren't beating you up at that moment, you had a better opportunity than Paul did here. And yet the question is, what did you and I do with that opportunity? Did we make the most of it or not? And so here's the challenge over the next seven days, between the time we're sitting here right now and the time we meet again next Lord's Day, to take at least one opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. Now, I don't know what kind of an opportunity that might be. It might only be you get to share a sentence or two about what he's done in your life. It might be an hour-long conversation with a friend. I don't know. But take at least one opportunity in the next seven days to tell someone about the Lord. You know, if we all did that, we would have more than a thousand gospel conversations in the next seven days. You think if we had a thousand gospel conversations in the next seven days that somebody might get saved? I think they would. And so church, let's man up. Part of manning up means to loosen up about non-gospel issues. Part of manning up means to look up, to be looking for opportunities. But lastly, part of manning up means to speak up, to be ready to share our story of what God has done in our life. That's what Paul does here in chapter 22. Again, he's standing there at the top of these stairs with this angry mob before him, and he shares his story. Let's read it. It's in chapter 22. We're just going to read through the chapter and just talk about it very briefly before we're through. Acts 22, verse 1. He says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God as you are all today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. 
as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed, that I came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. And then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Verse 22. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander saying, take care what you do for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. The commander answered with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. If you look back at verse one, Paul says, hear my defense before you now. The word defense is the Greek word apologia that we get our word apologetics from, the defense of the faith. And this is the first of six speeches where Paul defends his faith that take place between now and the end of the book of Acts. But in this particular speech, he includes a part of his testimony, of his spiritual story of how he met the Lord Jesus in a personal way. Now, we won't spend as long talking about this story today because we've already seen it one time back in Acts chapter 9. And we'll actually see it one more time in Acts 26 because Paul shares his testimony again when he is standing before King Agrippa. But Paul's story is a powerful story of the power of God to totally transform someone's life and turn them in a brand new direction. 
Paul starts out by explaining how not only was he not a Christian before, but he was actually totally opposed to Christianity, to what he calls the way. He was so opposed to it that he was persecuting Christians. He had letters in his hand that gave him the authority to go to Damascus and arrest Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem where they could be punished. And it was while he was on the way doing that that the Lord met him. A blinding light came from heaven, knocked him off his horse to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And what he heard next would change the course of his life. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And after that, for the rest of his life, Paul would live to make the name of Jesus known. There there is so much we can take away from this speech, but as we think about speaking up and sharing our story with the world around us, here's just a few quick lessons we can learn from Paul here in this chapter. When we speak up, first of all, we need to be calm. We need to be calm like Paul was here. You know, that is easier said than done in a situation like this. Remember, Paul had just gotten beat up They would have still been beating him unless the soldiers had intervened. Uh, They were yelling at him. They were saying things about him that were not true. You know, if Paul was just responding in his flesh to that and not in the spirit, it would have been very easy to just get angry himself, wouldn't it? It would have been very easy for him to just start yelling at the crowd and telling them why they were wrong, why they shouldn't have been doing that. But that's not what he does. He doesn't lose his cool. In fact, if you read these words, it doesn't even appear that there's a taint of anger here. Instead, he very calmly tells them about what the Lord had done in his life and what the Lord could do in their life. It reminds me of what Peter said we should all do in 1 Peter 3. He said, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and with respect. As one person put it, when you're in a situation like this, when your faith is being attacked and you're being forced to respond to that, pray to the Lord. Take a moment and pray and ask him to give you peace. Ask him to fill you with his love for the person you're talking to. You might be able to share the good news with them calmly. Also, when we speak up, let's be wise. Let's be wise. What I mean by that is let's think about who it is that we're speaking to as we think about what we say to them. You know, when you compare this version of Paul's testimony with the one that shows up a few chapters later in Acts 26 when he's speaking to King Agrippa, there's some differences between these two. Now, they harmonize together, but you can tell he's choosing the aspects of his story that he wants to emphasize based on who he's speaking to. Here, it's very clear. He's aware I'm speaking to a Jewish audience, a Jewish audience that right now thinks I am attacking their faith. And so he grows, goes to great lengths here to tell them that that's not the case. If you look at his story, he talks about how he came from a strict Jewish background himself how he was taught by the most revered rabbi of his day, Gamaliel, how he was taught uh, the scriptures, how he was so zealous for the Christian faith, again, that he hunted down Christians to persecute them until he met Jesus. And his whole outlook 
change. What, he, what he's trying to do here is to tell this crowd that believing in Jesus is not some aberration. It's not some departure from the Jewish faith. It's actually the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, that Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the fulfillment of all of the promises that God has made throughout the pages of the Old Testament. When we're sharing with people today, we need to think about what their background is. And we need to think about what we're sharing in a way that is wise, in a way that will connect with them, that will help them to see how the Lord Jesus can change their life. Lastly, not only we want to be calm and wise, it's also important that we be honest. Now, that's probably what strikes me the most when I read Paul's story here, is that he's honest. There's a rawness here and a transparency here that is so refreshing to see. You see it particularly in verses 17 and 18, where or excuse me, verse 19 and 20, where, where Paul shares about some painful moments in his life. He talks about how he used to persecute and even beat these Christians. You, you think Paul might have had some faces in his memory of Christians that he beat with his own fists before he came to know Jesus? It's probably painful now for him as a Christian to go back in his mind to some of those things. He even shares about the day in Jerusalem where he stood there holding the coats of the people who were throwing stones at Stephen's face the day he stood there and watched Stephen die as the first martyr of the church. And he goes back in his mind and he shares about those things as painful as that was to do because he wants to be real about where he came from. And you know what? We need to do the same. When we share our story, we need to be honest about who we were before we met Christ. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we go on and on and on about every detail of our sin. We want to make sure that our story is, is not so much about God's, our sin as it is about the grace of God that changed us. But we do need to share enough about our past, enough about where we came from, that people know we don't believe that we are where we are now by our own strength and by our own power or because we were just came into this life squeaky clean. We need people to know that, no, we were lost, we were sinners, we were rejected, we were separated from God. We were filthy because of our sin, and it's the grace of God that met us and cleansed us. We need to be real when we share with others. And you know what that does? It helps them to know that no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, no matter what they might be ashamed of, that God will meet them right where they are with his love. And he can transform them just like he transformed me and you, just like he transformed the Apostle Paul. Well, the angry mob listened to Paul speak until he got to that last little bit in verse 21 about how God had sent him on a mission to the Gentiles. They did not like that word. And when they heard that, because of their Jewish pride, because of their spiritual elitism, that was more than they could handle. The rage that had been there a moment ago now was bubbling back up. It says they were tearing their clothes. They were throwing dirt up in the air. They were ready to put him to death right there. They said, away with him. He is not fit to live. You know, it reminds me of very similar cries that happened at the trial of Jesus just a few decades before this in the very same city of Jerusalem. And since Paul spoke in Aramaic, the commander, Lysias, had no idea what Paul said to them, but he did know that the crowd did not like it. And he knew that he was about to have a mob on his hands, and so he took Paul inside the barracks. He said, the only way I can get to the bottom of this is by interrogating him by scourging. And so they strapped Paul to a rack. They pulled his body taut so that it might 
uh, inflict more pain when they scourged him with the whip. But before they began the scourging, Paul protested and brought up the fact that he was a Roman citizen, that it was not legal for them to scourge him before he had been convicted of any crime. And when the Romans heard that, they backed away immediately. They knew that they could get in trouble. In fact, they could even be put to death for doing something like this against a Roman citizen. By appealing to his citizenship in this moment, Paul avoids this scourging. But also in God's sovereign plan, this appeal to his citizenship places Paul in a process of the Roman legal system where a series of hearings will end up carrying Paul, again, in God's sovereign plan, all the way to Rome at the end of the book of Acts. I know we've been talking about manning up today and standing firm in our faith like Paul did, and that is what the world needs today. There are enough Christian wimps who are living just like the world, who fold up and chicken out whenever it gets hard to stand for Jesus in a culture that increasingly does not like the message of the Bible. And we need some Christ followers today, some courageous men and women who would man up for Jesus, who would take every opportunity to speak the name of Jesus no matter the cost. But I want to be clear today when I say all of that, I want to make sure I don't leave you with the impression that we're able to do that, that that we're able to man up in our own power and in our own strength, that the strength to stand for God comes from God. And that starts when we meet God in a personal way. In fact, here is the truth, friends. You can't man up until you meet the man. You can't man up until you meet the man. I'm not the man. You're not the man. The man is Christ Jesus. And Paul said so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. He said this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the man that we all need. He is the only mediator. He is the only bridge for any of us to be able to have a relationship with a perfect and holy God. The Christian life starts with meeting the man, Christ Jesus, on the road of your life, just like Paul met him on the road to Damascus. Friend, I don't know if you have met him yet or not, but I want to invite you today to come to meet him, to meet Christ in a personal way. I want to ask you to stand with me. And we're going to sing a song together. And, and, and as soon as we start singing this song, if, if you're here today and, and you're not sure that you have a personal relationship with God. I didn't ask if you've been to church. I didn't ask if you know some things about the Bible. I asked, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know that if you died today that you'd spend eternity with God in heaven? And if you don't have that peace, if you don't have that assurance, I want to invite you today, come and speak with me. Speak with one of the other pastors who are here. Begin that journey on your road of life, of walking with the Lord Jesus, the one mediator between God and men. I know this message today has mainly been for us who already know Christ. And I just want to open this altar up today while we sing this song. Maybe maybe you just need to come and pray because maybe as you've listened to this word today, God has just convicted you that you haven't always been manning up. 
You've kind of maybe just been, if you're just honest about it, you would say, I've just kind of been going with the flow. I've been kind of just going along with the crowd. I've been taking the path of least resistance. I never talk about my faith. I never say anything publicly. I'm afraid of what people might say or do if I ever own up to the fact I'm a Christ follower. So I just kind of keep that under wraps. And maybe you just need to come today and just say, God, would you forgive me for that? You, don't, you haven't called me to be a secret Christian. And maybe ask him today, would you give me your boldness your strength, your grace, your love, your power to be able to to man up, to stand for Christ where you have placed me in this culture right now. You can kneel where you are. You can come and pray here at the altar. Maybe there's another decision you need to make. Maybe God's leading you to join our church family or to be baptized, to go public with your faith in Christ through baptism. You can come and tell us about that too. Right now, you come. Whatever that next step is for you.